So today we have Tucker Lieberman with us. And so I have this one question, you know, about the introduction part. And I'll ask you to introduce yourself. And I want uh, you to introduce yourself on how a loved one will introduce you. So the person who loves you the most in the world, how will they introduce you? That is such an interesting question. Um, I would say they would introduce me as someone who is generally calm and who likes to be present when in conversation with others and someone who has a lot of creative and perhaps weird perspectives on the world. And uh, how would they introduce you professionally, like in professional terms? In professional talks, they would, they would, um, they would know that I have worked in technology okay. for many years. Also, that I write books. I write nonfiction, and I enjoy writing stories as well. And that I have a lot of freelance clients, and I help them with telling their stories and pursuing their passion projects. Okay. All right, so you just gave me another topic that we would <laughs> talk about in the minutes to come. Uh, you know, for everyone who is watching us, uh, there is one particular topic that I wanted to learn about. And uh, this whole interview series is only, you know, kind of me learning from industry experts and sharing it live, you know, with everyone who's going to watch. So, uh, uh, Tucker, you, I have read about it and I would want to hear it from, you know, you, uh, about, uh, your journey of being a trans person. I'm sorry if I'm, you know, like I'm quite uneducated on it. So if I use some unaware words, uh, please pardon me and educate me and correct me. Certainly. You just want me to tell my story from the beginning. Uh, sure. Sure, I can do that. Um, and I also wanted to thank you very much for having me here and um, you know giving me this opportunity to have this conversation because I know that many interesting things will come up. And since it's candid, I have no idea what is going to come up, but I know this is going to be interesting. So I'm grateful to be here. So I just wanted to thank you, Dipanchu. Um Yeah, so I am a transgender man. I don't often introduce myself that way to begin with because okay. it, it's, um, you, you know, it is, it is part of my identity, definitely, but, you know, many things are part of my identity. So not all of my identity pieces are always relevant all the time. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's also accurate to describe me simply as a man, because I live as a man. Okay. The specific kind of man I am is a transgender man, um, because I was born female. That's how I describe it. Other okay. transgender people might not like to describe their bodies and their journeys that way, but I'm comfortable saying that. Um, I'm 40 years old and I was born female. And then when I was a teenager, I began transitioning to live as a man. Okay. So my experience is of someone who has started that process 
in the mid 90s, late 90s. And yeah, I've been living as a man for over 20 years. Okay, amazing. Uh, and again, like I mentioned, I'm going to, you know, like ask you a lot of even quite basic terms. So I may, you know, like know them from Google, but a lot of people who is going to watch this might not know it, right? So, uh, so I, I know that trans comes from, you know, LGBTQ. So it's one part of the whole equation. So can you talk a little bit about LGBTQ? Sure. The way I understand that acronym okay. is that it is a political umbrella. It's, okay. it's a, a political coalition of sorts that, hmm. you know, there's different identity labels. So the people who identify as L are generally women who identify as loving women. And, you know, they, they might have different agendas from the men who identify with the G, who identify as loving men. Okay. Um, and that might have some overlap with the people who are bisexual, who um, can, can pursue partnerships with people of either gender, quote unquote, either gender, men or women, or also any gender, because it yeah. might be a more expansive sense of gender. Um, and for transgender people as well, which is a gender experience, not a sexuality. So transgender people, yeah, they can identify as gay or they can identify as straight. They might be bisexual, they might date other transgender people or not date other transgender people. Um, right, so there's a lot of potential overlap in the hmm. LGBT hmm. identities. And, you know, sometimes people might of course, not agree with each other on their perspectives on the world or even on their political agendas, what they what they consider to be a uh, top priority for their okay. for their pursuit of their political rights, for example. Um, but it is it's it's more of a, um, a broad based coalition. So when we say LGBT, we have an idea that it's including a lot of different people, but it it basically is affirming diversity in gender and sexuality. Hmm. The Q is, is more broad yet. It's, it's um, big. It could mean queer or it could mean questioning. It leaves okay. it open because people might not know, right? They, they yeah. know that they have something going on with their gender or sexuality and they're open to what that might be. And they might stay there. They might say, I don't need to label the way in which I'm queer. I'm just queer they might not want to decide between bisexual and gay or lesbian, for example. They could, they could just yep. leave that open. Uh, and there are also other letters that are sometimes included in that acronym, like I is for intersex, meaning people okay. who are born with different physical characteristics, maybe of okay. both sexes. Um, and sometimes you see A, which is asexual, people who don't feel as much of um, a, a sexual drive or, or a romantic drive, maybe. It, it, it depends mm. on the person. Okay. So this is um, a potentially very broad coalition and the yeah, acronym yeah. can get very long. Uh, okay, uh, so what I, before, you know, like we go forward, I really feel this need to, you know, like put a disclaimer on this conversation that, mm. you know, like, uh, I am coming from a background, I am like a straight male, 
and i ha- although i have you know like a couple of maybe friends in belonging to the lgbt community but i'm quite unaware and uneducated at this moment about the whole you know lgbtq uh, whatever you can call it right so uh, during the whole conversation i might say something because of my unawareness that may be offensive i i'll try my best not to you know like say anything inconsiderate but it might come up because of my unawareness but this whole the whole point of having this conversation is to actually educate myself and you know everybody who is going to be educated in my network so i you know like uh, really want to how what, what's the right uh, sentence to use here i i don't want to be you know like diplomatic or anything but i would you know just want to put a disclaimer that i understand that i'm unaware and i'm just trying to learn right so if in any case there is someone who is watching this right now and they have a question you can you know just put it in the comments and we'll try our best to uh, answer it with experience and authenticity uh, sure. what what i understand about lgbtq community as a whole is that it's a community that is you know kind of challenging the binary norms of the society that has been you know up for a really long time mm-hmm. the binary uh, or maybe not the binary part but the box that you know the society has put that you need to fit in you know within this box you need to either be this or be that you need the you know you know you either don't marry anyone or you marry this one kind of person and you wear these kind of clothes and you know you are born this way you stay this way and stuff like that do you also like kind of agree to this statement yeah i think that's that's very important that there is some spirit of inventiveness say or a little spark of rebellion sometimes it's a big spark of rebellion that's always yeah. been important to the gay community to the broader queer community to the transgender community and you know there there are people who uh, who are happy to fit in certain boxes um of course i have my own habits i'm 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 not always rebelling against social conformity every minute of my day um and and there are these debates within the community you know how radical should we be how assimilationist should we be um, for some gay people they see it as assimilationist even to get married even though it's a person of the same yeah. gender or sex they see the idea of marriage the institution of marriage as being too conformist or maybe hmm. capitalist or, or part of the government or something and, and they don't want any yeah. part of it and they don't feel that the government needs to recognize the marriage so these these uh conversations do take place um but yeah i would i would say challenging binaries and challenging expectations is is often part of that spirit of sexual liberation i'd say that yes. insofar as this is a, a sexual liberation movement or a gender liberation movement or just a sex and gender liberation personal experience that people have a journey that has to do with liberation then yes one one has to be liberated from something one is one is leaving something behind and choosing something else so so there's often a process of transformation involved 
uh, another part uh, you know like i'm making i'm letting you know all the statements that you know like i have about lgbt community so you know like i'm understanding if you know like i'm on the right path or maybe i'm misunderstanding something uh, another part uh, that i believe you know lgbt community uh, uh, that is doing really really well or you know like doing really correctly uh, one of i believe their major principles is uh, accept others the way they are as long as you know like it's not harming you if you are going to you know like uh, randomly abuse people without their consent or you know stuff like that uh, that's obviously like not at all acceptable but you know like mind your own business if somebody is doing something in their own bed in their own home it doesn't have anything to do with you so a kind of acceptance for who people are instead of you know like actually putting them in a label thing or maybe stuff like that yes yeah giving people space to choose their own label perhaps possibly yes that's a better word yeah that's a better word thank you for saying that yeah to choose their own label and a lot of it you know like comes from mind your own business kind of advice like as long as it's not affecting you directly mind your own business <laughs> uh and i <laughs> i want to thank you for you know like uh coming on and uh, talking about this a little heavy topic even in the beginning of this whole conversation but you know like i had these uh questions that i wanted to you know like ask you specifically and talking about uh, we talked about you know the marriage or the normal the social norms that we have that you get attracted to you your opposite sex and then you come in really then you know like you ask them out on a date then you uh, you know like propose to them then you get en- engaged and then get married and then have kids and then you know like you live till you die <laughs> mm-hmm. so i see uh, now because we have internet because we have access to so much information and personal stories i see a lot of people challenging these norms so i'll tell you a little story about me is it okay if if i go forward in this direction please do <laughs> so uh for certain period of time uh, and i'm doing this first time on camera so i might be a little vulnerable uh for certain period of time in my life i went on to doing some hookups okay and relationships were not working out for me or whatever reason were and then i decided i'm not happy and i was putting you know like shame on myself that how and why did i do this kind of things why did i not commit to a certain person or you know stuff like that and i saw that you know like i had a lot of shame that i went through a couple of hookups there was you know like internal shame there might not be as much external shame as you know the internal shame was for me and then i read about this part that it's okay to explore it's okay to you know like meet new people and uh, not feel guilty about it or you know like meet new people without commitment and obviously the pillar or the foundation has to be self awareness and uh, honest communication mm-hmm. so 
I am actually talking about is because I recently wrote a little story about whatever I just mentioned. What are your thoughts about this? So this is, you know, like a person, a psychologist uh, termed this as flow experience or flow exploration that you are in mm. an expo- exploration that you are exploring, you know, the flow or you're exploring new relationships without committing. Interesting. I've heard the term flow used in creativity. Me too. As in <laughs> when we do our, our projects, um, you know, we're painting and we get absorbed in the process of painting. That's that's how I've heard the term flow used. I I imagine something like that could apply to interpersonal relationships. Exactly. Where you just you're so immersed in getting to know this person and you you aren't um you aren't taking direction from some outside set of expectations that there's no checklist like okay first i introduce myself to this person and then we shake hands and then we ask each other where we're from and you know like there there can be a scripted conversation um that often we apply to our interactions but maybe something that's more in a flow state is just saying, I am enjoying this interaction so much. Let's just see what it is. Let's just be in the moment. You defined it really well. <laughs> I didn't have a de- particular definition for this. Uh, so thank you for, you know, like uh, discussing this uh, one topic. Uh, is it okay if we discuss a little bit about your personal story of, you know, like uh, transitioning? Is that the word you use? Yeah. That's a good word. Okay. Gender so, transition. Gender transition. So uh, can you talk a little bit about when was the, f- so let's start with when was the first time you realized that you don't fit in the box that you have given, that the society has given to you? I would say when I was a young teenager. Okay. Age 12, 13. And then I didn't have any labels for it. I mean, at that age, I barely understood the word gay. And also I didn't particularly identify myself as gay because I was raised as a girl and I was interested in boys. So I knew that I wasn't a lesbian, Yeah. but, but something felt, um, something felt not in sync with the model. I felt like I was gay without being gay. And I didn't, I couldn't explain that when I was 12 years old in 1992, for example. Uh, But then when I was 14 or 15, I I had this idea that I would really be happier as a man and that um, I I had uh, problems feeling comfortable in my body. I had um, a very strong sense of what we might call dysphoria. And I think people experience body dysphoria in other circumstances like people who have eating disorders might feel a very strong sense of disconnect from their bodies and they have trouble looking at themselves in a mirror or they see themselves in a mirror and they say, that's not me. Um, Hmm. I had that kind of profound psychological disconnect with my sense of my own body. And I felt that my body should really be male. So that was what I decided I wanted to pursue. Um, And and also I understood uh, that if I were a man and if I continued to date men, that I would be gay. And that was really what I 
I felt that I was. I felt like I was more of a gay man. So, so I was trying to figure that out in the mid '90s, early to mid '90s. Uh, okay. We did have a little bit of internet at home. It was dial-up, and we paid by the hour. But uh, that was helpful in, in you know, helping me uh, find some people who felt the same way that I did, because okay. it was really an idea that formed in my own mind, in my own imagination. It wasn't something I learned from other people at all. It was more, I came up with this idea and I wanted to know if I was the only person in the world who felt this way. So I logged onto the internet and found a few other people who were using similar language to describe their feelings. And you know, we had a, a little bit of a community. I formed a few friendships online. And then you know, later in the nineties, I began to meet people in person. And we also oh. had better then as well. That's great. Uh, what what I want to ask you is, you know, like before we move forward, uh, so you mentioned that you found uh, some disconnection or out of sync, you know, with your body when you recognized as a female. Uh, is it okay if you, you know, like talk a little bit more in depth about it? Because I believe if somebody is going through that phase, they might be, you know, like able to connect more with your personal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some people, it can be visual. Let's say that, that people identify aspects of their body that they wish looked a certain way. Okay. But then there's also a part of being embodied that's more kinetic, I want to say. It's about movement. Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable how your how your body moves and and your your sense of of being being the one who is moving? I want to say because because our bodies are not objects to us. Mm. We can treat them as objects. We can say, oh, I don't like this part of my cheek. I can go to a plastic surgeon and and fix this little part. But but apart from treating our bodies as as objects that we can tweak, we also have a sense of being identical with our bodies. Yeah. And, and that's a little bit harder to put words on because it's, it's not just that we are looking at ourselves in the mirror and having a visual opinion of what we want to change. It's, it's more, how do I want to move in the world? How do I want to stand um, my mm-hmm. posture? For example, uh, that that's something I could mention that for transgender men, at least, possibly also for women, uh, if if we're uncomfortable with our chests, we might mm. use different postures to try to okay. adjust the way our our chests appear to be shaped to other people. So, mm. so let's say for a transgender man who has a larger chest, he might tend to slouch like this, to hide the chest, to, okay. to hunch forward, um, and to wear loose clothing, for example. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of people who go through that, and they may not know at that moment exactly what it is they're trying to do. Because yeah. when someone for the first time is feeling, oh, I'm uncomfortable with my chest, I just, I just want to hide like this, they're having a feeling in their body that they want to hide or present themselves a certain way or wear large clothes 
and it may not articulate itself as I want to be a man, and so I'm uncomfortable with my large chest. Yeah. That, that may take a while, that they, they may need to be experiencing those feelings for a while. If it's a feeling that just happens on one day or, or in certain, certain circumstances, like, um, like say on a city street, right? Some, some women don't feel safe on a city street and they're yeah. trying to hide their body because they are afraid yeah, of yeah. what men might say or do to them. That's, that's not necessarily a dissatisfaction with their gender. That's just trying to protect themselves on the street. But then there's other people who feel that way basically all the time that they just yeah. do not feel that their body is their own or that they can inhabit it in any way that makes sense to them. So they're having this repeated feeling like I, I want to stand differently. I want to walk differently. I want to moderate my voice differently. I wish I had a little beard shadow, something like that. And, and when those mm. feelings start to coalesce, then sometimes people say, you know, this is um, an opinion about my gender. I, I yeah. have something to say about my gender that isn't the box that I was given to live in. Uh, I'll, I'll make this, you know, a uh, point of gratitude once again, that we live in an era where education and networking is so easy that, you know, like we know that, okay, this is something I am not alone in this world or, you know, like there is nothing wrong with me, my body or, you know, like uh, it, talking about LGBT or even talking about, you know, uh, just not being able to fit in that box of the society, you know, like for example, if I don't want to get married by 30, it's okay. There are so many people who are not getting married by 30. <laughs> this is giving, you know, like one random example. So yeah. it, internet has made this possible to, you know, like uh, find a lot of people who are exactly who you are. Or, you know, like who relate so much to who you think you are or you are trying to be or whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Thank you for sharing, you know, the whole uh, answer to my question about, you know, like uh, what are usually the changes that a person might experience before they, you know, decide on something. Uh, what has been your experience with terms of, you know, your families or your friends, your parents, uh, when they came to know about the whole, whatever you went through? My parents were very supportive. Okay. At first, they didn't understand it, which is fairly typical, especially in the 90s, before we had any yeah. internet. Uh, they had just never heard of anyone doing it, really. It wasn't even on TV news. There, there really were not profiles on television news in the 90s of people transitioning from one gender to another, or very rarely maybe on a talk show, it would be sensationalized. Yeah. And they'd have transgender people on to cry or yell at each other. And then the host would say something disparaging at them, you know, but really there was not much information. And in our house, we had just gotten internet when I came out to my parents and I was using it more than they were. They, they had gotten it because I wanted it. Um, but we had to pay by the hour. So <laughs> I really couldn't use it very much. Yeah. And, and they didn't use it at all. So they, they had not begun to search online uh, and they, they okay. Okay. didn't know the 
about the existence of transgender people. They, they didn't know any in person, for example. That's a huge thing, right? Yeah. I mean, aside from the information that we can find online, it makes a big difference if you know a person in your real life yeah. who belongs to that identity group. Yes, true. So what were, uh, so, okay, you mentioned the experience with your parents that they came to, you know, like accept the whole thing, you know, like uh, in the process, right? Uh, what were your, uh, the reaction of your friends, maybe let's say, or relatives or people who are not, you know, your blood relatives, let's say. Yeah, I was in high school at the time. Okay. And it was a fairly liberal high school. Okay. The high school, for example, gave us some free time during the day, a little bit. Often people, students had a free hour during the day. At lunchtime, for example, or as they got to be older students, if they weren't taking a class, they'd have a free period. And the mm -hmm. high school let us leave the campus. Okay. You know, they said, you have a car. If, if you choose to bring a car to school and you have a free hour, it's your business if you want to drive somewhere and have lunch and come back. Like you manage your own time. Uh, I know lots of high schools, at least in the United States, are not like that. They, they expect students to be on campus and um, they're a little more regimented with where students have to be at any moment. Um, but you know, my high school was fairly liberal and just had this attitude of treating us a bit more like university students at a younger age. Okay. Treating us a bit more like adults. And that was the culture of the school. So there were areas of the school, you know, where people who were a little more like misfits would hang out. People who dressed a little differently. We had people who dressed goth, for example. Okay who wore all black or you know, had a more of a punk image or the, the drama students, the people who okay. like to sing and dance and act. Um, we all had our little groups. Oh, and I was in the literary magazine because mm -hmm. I was always interested in poetry. So that was one of my social groups, just whoever liked poetry. Yeah. And that was mostly girls. And, you know, the people who are into poetry, um, it tends to be the case. Poets have somewhat of a natural tolerance for different understandings of sex yeah. and gender because they're exploring ideas and metaphors and new ways of seeing the world, new ways of using language. Yeah, so the, the people I knew at school who I cared about were okay with my gender transition. I didn't announce it really. I, I never stood up in front of any class and said I was changing my gender. I just told my teachers, could you please use this new name for me? And could you switch my pronouns? Could you call me he? Okay. And it made the teachers a little uncomfortable, I think, the first time, because maybe they probably had never met anyone who changed their gender. And now they were doing this for a student, you know, a, a minor, someone who was not yet 18. So yeah. it may have been a little uncomfortable for them. And I think they weren't sure how other people in the class would react. But it was interesting mm -hmm. that none of my classmates really seemed to require any explanation. They just 
took it in stride, you know, that, okay, someone in the class is suddenly using a new name and new pronouns and has different hair and is dressing a little differently. Okay, okay. Um, I think if it made them uncomfortable, they just didn't talk to me and they processed that themselves without bothering me about it, which was nice. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the people I interacted with more regularly, like the people who I wrote poetry with, they they adjusted to it. They, they figured it out. It was okay. Got it. Uh, so do you talk about the previous name you had? No, I, I don't. Um, I guess because when I first transitioned, I was worried that if people knew the previous name, they would use it, at oh. least mentally, because they would have both names in their mind. Yeah. And they would, okay, yeah. this is the girl name, and this is the boy name, and this person in front of me is both of those things, so they are a girl and a boy. And I just, like, I didn't want to be introduced as that girl name. So I figured no one needs to know about it. And I, I left it completely behind which I did before I turned 18. So it's, or around the time I turned 18, around my 18th birthday, I legally changed my name. Anyway, okay. it was before I had opened any bank accounts, for example, or before I had had any jobs. Oh. So I have no job history in that old name. Or any no, records? No records, no. Even my high school graduation came in my new name because I had started the process while I was in, in high school. They gave me the diploma as Tucker. So that's, yeah, that's my name. Uh, so uh, again, I'm going to, you know, like apologize before I, you know, like talk about, ask you this question. Uh, can, can we call it that you were a little privileged with the kind of society you had, or at least that's, you know, the kind of vibe that I'm get, getting from yeah. all of your answers that you yes. were a little privileged with the, times and the ecosystem you were living in it could have been more privileged mm -hmm. if you were having you know like uh, uh, live people around your society or stuff like that but nonetheless do you feel that you were a little more privileged than other people because of the ecosystem and the times that you come from yes yeah I definitely had a relatively easy time of it socially yeah of course in my head, I had all kinds of emotions, the way high schoolers do when a high schooler is prone to depression and is going through their phases of adolescence. Totally. It's just, you know, I, I think um, many people remember that about their teens, that they had very intense emotions. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in that sense, it was a challenge for me. But socially, I did come from a place of privilege. So that helped me a lot something to be grateful about right mm -hmm. so uh okay thank you so much for you know sharing all of this uh, information i know that there is again a lot of other stories and questions that i can ask you around this topic but maybe we will do another interview after a couple of <laughs> weeks or months <laughs> uh, i want <laughs> Sure. So I want to ask uh, this one thing, you know, I want to talk a little bit about mental health and we can talk about mental health, you know, in particular to LGBTQ community 
or in general you know uh, like around in general let, let's say the in general word so uh, have you been through therapy or taken any you know mental health help in my life yeah i'm i'm not currently in therapy okay um in my teens i had to see therapists related to my gender because that was part of the process hmm. at the time i i needed okay. to be checked out <laughs> to see oh, yeah. if i was really transgender and they needed to write me a letter and say yes this person is really transgender and that's why he is allowed to get hormones and surgery okay that's something that transgender people in general have to go through go often that uh, if they want medical assistance with their gender needs or desires then they have got to be convincing their doctors and that okay. usually involves convincing a therapist so uh, there is that um yeah and at other times in my life when when i've had specific issues i've gone to a psychotherapist to talk about them um i think that's important i think it's something that people should learn how to do and feel comfortable doing of course it's it's a conversation right that yeah one has with the psychotherapist and conversations can turn out all kinds of ways they can be unexpectedly helpful they can sometimes <laughs> be disappointing we don't really know until we try right yeah so i think some people they go to a therapist and they're immediately disappointed or they're stressed and they don't go back or they're embarrassed to talk about it they're embarrassed to ask for advice about how do i find a therapist who works better for me um i i think it's it's something that people should definitely be open to doing and not be ashamed of doing because we all go through times in our lives when um we're facing difficult emotions or difficult situations and there's professionals out there who can be a good sounding board at the very least at, at the very least they can listen to us and reflect yeah. some of it back at us and often they can say things that are helpful so i i i endorse that uh i totally you know like kind of plus one to whatever you mentioned so there was a time in my life when i actually had to you know like go through psychotherapy so i i was having anxiety attacks i was probably you know like borderline depressed or something and so i don't know it was a privilege or you know just a personal characteristic i had this kind of mentality from really beginning that when you're going to a doctor you know it's your job to you know tell them your issues or what you think your issues are so they can help you the best way possible so i was like really shameless you know like when talking to my therapist that you know what i think this has been the issue or i have done this this is thing wrong or i think that i am doing this wrong right now and that kind of helped me a lot you know like getting the recovery as quickly as possible and so that was you know like uh, after that there were like two three times when i had to go through therapy like you know for a, a couple of weeks or a couple of sessions or so and for the past one year or uh, you know maybe one year what i'm doing is uh, so a, a part of coaching and we will talk about this uh, in the minutes to come is you know it elevates your personal insecurities as well when you you know like discuss your clients insecurities right maybe not always but 
there's a good possibility that it might elevate your you know like past trauma insecurities and stuff like that so what i've been doing recently or the past one year is i'm like taking one session every 2 3 4 months whenever i feel there is a necessity i have a coach with me but whenever i feel there's a necessity i don't you know like resist myself and i rather just you know have one session with a therapist yeah that makes sense uh what are your thoughts about when i said that you know as a coach so uh whoever is watching this uh, uh tucker has ha- you has you have been a, a life coach right you have been yeah. trained as a life I, coach i have trained as a life coach and uh so what are your views about the statement that i made that when you become a life coach when you you know like discuss your clients uh, ambitions dreams and insecurities or trauma or stuff like that you are bound to sometimes you know like uh that there may be a possibility that your own insecurities and trauma may be elevated that is very true that uh that that can happen because if if you're relating to someone and really absorbing what they're saying it can yeah. stay with you even in a professional relationship yeah i think people can understand that from jobs that are not like coaching and therapy jobs that are for example if someone works in a restaurant and the people you are interacting with are telling you stories about their lives just in conversation they had a breakup and they're telling you about their breakup as they're eating their breakfast you absorb yeah. that right even though you're you're not ultimately responsible for it yes yes you still hear it and it's it becomes part of your world um so all the more so if one is a therapist or a coach and you are taking on some measure of responsibility for helping that person to navigate yeah. their own problems yeah people definitely need to take care of their own mental health so that they can be present for others and so that they can enjoy their lives right and and i think working with another coach as a coach is also important because that's how you learn how to coach Yeah. It's like we can't talk to someone if we've never talked to someone else, right? Like we we learn language from someone and then we can share that language with someone else. Or I we've had someone we've had teachers so we know how to teach is basically how it works. I I really believe, you know, like uh having a coach is a prerequisite to being a coach. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot uh like you can but it will not be as effective if you actually have a coach. so you could just get trained as a coach and you know like you start coaching others but that will be significantly less effect- effective than if you actually have a coach by your side as well because you will be a lot convinced that you know this is why people should take coaching right so uh, what has been your experience with life coaching when did you take up and what was your intention with it i took a course in 2016 i spent 2 weeks okay in residence at a retreat center um, mm-hmm. one week in the spring and one week in the fall with a group of people who were training to be coaches and 
during the six months in between, we coached each other over Zoom and we studied together over Zoom as we were working with clients as well. Hmm. So, yeah, so that was five years ago, almost five years ago. Hmm. And the way I got interested in it was I thought of people who had been helpful to me in my life. And I wanted to come into my adulthood, let's say, into yeah. the next stage of my life and feel that I could give something back, that I could take some of that energy that I so admired in other people and learn how to reflect it outward. What was your uh, area of expertise? Like, I understand life coaches cover a lot of things, but everybody has some favorite or, you know, like area of expertise. What was yours? The interesting thing about this group that I studied with at the retreat center was that it was a program for gay men. Okay. All 12 of us in the program identified as gay men. And I was the only one who also identified as transgender. Okay. So we had that in common and we talked a lot about what it means to be a gay coach. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to interrupt because I got this question. So uh, when you are a gay or a, you know, like lesbian or bisexual or, you know, talking about your sexuality, it's going to be something that is, you know, like uh, going to be dynamic, let's say. But when you're talking about being a transgender, isn't it, you know, like, you don't have to identify yourself as a transgender because it has already happened and it was, you know, kind of a one-time thing mm -hmm. and like, or like, educate me. <laughs> that, that is very true. In one sense, I'm transgender, whether I like it or not, because yeah. I've made physical changes to my body and I've changed my name legally and everyone I know relates to me as a man for the past 20 years. So yes, in that sense, I'm, I'm just transgender and it's just a fact because there's no version of me that was born male and there's also no version of me that has lived as an adult woman. I, I have the life that I've had and I have the body that I have now, which is now a transgender body, so it's a fact. Um, in, in another sense though, transgender is kind of an identity because there are transgender people who like to forget, who, who yeah. choose not to identify with that earlier part of themselves. They hmm. want to keep the past in the past. They, they grew up yeah. in a certain gender and they feel like, well, since I don't identify with that gender, I'm leaving it behind intentionally. Yeah. I can forget about it. And also like the part of the transition that was difficult why focus on that some people feel <laughs> yeah yeah Th that that's the same question you know like i have uh, yeah yeah um so that's why i sometimes say identify as transgender because there's private identification as transgender as well like like whether i okay. feel transgender today okay how how different do I feel from everyone else around me? Do do I distinguish myself as a transgender person, or do I feel just like a person, which I often do? I'm just a person like everyone else. There's that kind of private identification, and then there's also public 
identification, self-reporting yeah. one's identity. So if I'm in a room with people, I vocally identify myself as transgender. I say, hello, yeah. my name is Tucker. I'm a transgender man. Then everyone knows it because I identified myself. Yeah, I yeah, speak. yeah. Um, and so then when I say I'm in a room with a hundred people and two of them identify as transgender, I might mean, well, they've publicly identified themselves to me as transgender. They told me. And there might be other people in the room who are actually transgender. They just don't say it. And that's their choice not to say it. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, so you mentioned, and I'd rather, you know, like I would uh, be interested to uh, learn more about it. Uh, public identification and personal identification or private identification. And it comes because you are a writer as well. Uh, we already discussed a little about that. So I, uh, we can talk about this, you know, like when writing nonfiction books, a lot of writers, not just uh, nonfiction books, but whenever we are writing, we know, you know, like writing our story can help a lot of people relate to it. But there's always this dilemma that, you know, how much do I want to publicly, you know, uh, tell my story or how much uh, personal would I want to go? And uh, I just wanted to share this one fact that uh, I, I read about it, I guess, a couple of days ago only that there are, you know, like personal stories and then there are private stories. And you may wish to not write about private stories, but it's okay to write about personal stories. What are your views about it? Interesting. I'm understanding the distinction between personal and private. Yeah. As a story you want to share because it reveals something important about your life. Yeah. And then a story that for whatever reason, needs to remain secret. Or maybe only a couple of people, you know, like, or uh, the, uh, the person who mentioned about all this was, so he mentioned my private stories may have, uh, you know, behavior of my family as well, which I would mm -hmm. not want to reveal publicly. Or it may include a lot of other people that I would not feel comfortable, you know, like naming in public or stuff like that. So those stories will be private to me. And then there are personal stories that, you know, like I have gone through and it's okay if I want to share it. That's uh, very true. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of a way that we sometimes conflate those two things yeah. in professional situations. Because sometimes, at least where I'm from in the United States, in, in an office, sometimes the boss will use a word like personal. And it means the same thing as private. private. Like, you don't have to tell me things that are personal. You can take a personal day, and it's not my business what you do on your personal day. This is your personal matter. This is your personal phone. We don't look at your personal phone. We might look at your work phone. We might give you a mobile to use for business purposes. And we look at that. We look at all those tech messages but we look at text messages on your personal phone because they're private so that's like smashing together yeah. the personal and the private but yes truly i i think it's an important distinction 
including even when we're at work, just to know, because we might want to get to know our boss better. And we might want to have a personal conversation with our boss. Like, yes. Boss, yes. do you want to know who I really am as a person? I'm going to tell you yeah. something personal about me, which is different from saying, oh, some stuff I got to keep private. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, when we see it in a corporate world space. So I just uh, took a note about it that I would want to write more about this distinction that, you know, it's okay to share personal stories and maybe you would just not want to share your private stories and maybe it's better to, you know, differentiate between these two. So it's okay for you to, you know, like open up in your writing more because I believe a lot of writing becomes vanilla when we don't uh, share our personal stories. When we feel it's not, you know, like it's, uh, when we don't allow ourselves to become vulnerable in public. So again, I come from the extreme part where, you know, like I practice public vulnerability a lot. I share a lot of my, you know, like sometimes even private stories. So I, you know, like share a lot of personal stories. So the, uh, the ratio between personal and private in my life is, you know, you know I have like 95% of all stories as personal and not private. But I, you know, like I come from that kind of school and I've been doing it for a couple of years now. And it became like a therapy for me. <laughs> but uh, coming back to the point that I believe a lot of, you know, writing, that a lot of writers, maybe new writers or maybe, you know, like not as established writers, but a lot of new writers, uh, they can become really great writers or they can, you know, like really what's the word to use here? They can level up their writing tremendously if they start, you know, writing personal stuff as well. What is your take on it? I, I do think there is a lot to be learned from investigating our own stories, first of all, investigating yes. in the sense of inquiring, contemplating, yeah. possibly with a therapist or a coach or with friends spending time with them, writing them down in our journal. And then once we are emotionally present with the story and really connected with it, we can try to begin to share it in a more public way um, as, as a published story, for example, or as mm -hmm. a video. There is a lot of value in learning to do that. We learn about ourselves. And we also learn about relationships because we learn about what other people care about, specific people in our lives. We learn more about our friends when we see what parts of our story they're relating to. And it helps them open up about their stories too. So we learn more about them. And we just learn more about life and communication in general. Uh, so if I were to put whatever you mentioned in my words, you know, like how would I understand it better? Uh, or, you know, what I'm understanding, what you're, whatever you're mentioned in the whole this last one or two minutes, the ideal process or the best way to, you know, like open up publicly is to start having conversations with yourself first. Going through therapy and coaching helps you do that right? Becoming self-aware is the very first part. 
the second part would be having those conversations with maybe friends or people who are close to you right yeah. and then possibly doing the third part and you know like revealing it in the public or yeah. you know doing that kind of a thing it makes me wonder that uh i started writing it publicly first i don't know i i followed maybe a different pattern or something but how it all started for me was uh, i started writing about my crush and i rather write about her than you know like go and ask her out on a date <laughs> so <laughs> as a teenager <laughs> so you know it it make me a writer very first thing i was not a writer before that so there's a platform kora.com it's a question answer website so I started you know writing on that and a couple of my answers went viral the way i was you know like uh, expressing my feelings so i used to be a speaker before that and so it gave me you know like a little bit of boost and motivation that maybe i should try writing more and then mm-hmm. i went through therapy and depression and i started writing more about mental health and it was you know maybe i am possibly i'm an exception in this case that because i started that way it was fairly easy for me to you know like open up about myself in public and that's that's the best writing i do you know if there is certain uh, story that's coming to me i'm you know like a proper intuition kind of person i have to write it down i have to you know let it out i cannot just sit with it i cannot you know like sleep over it it actually has to go online as soon as possible or not maybe online but it has to go on in words i have to see it in words uh, that's possibly my uh, process what what has been your process around you know sharing your uh, personal stories i tend to hang on to my most personal stories for a very long time before sharing them years and years and oh. years oh my goodness I did. <laughs> I did actually recently publish my memoir i have it here on my desk uh this book is called bad fire it's not very long let's see it's a uh, 180 pages okay um but considering the length of time i worked on it you know it feels fairly short to me and it's not all my personal story it's also some philosophical ideas Okay. But yes. I have always been a writer. And this is the only book-length memoir that I have because because I've hung on to my stories for so long and only when I approached age 40 did I release a book-length memoir. And I also do not typically put my stories out on the internet. as articles or in magazines um i just haven't done very much of that okay the the article writing i do is usually about other topics about other people's books about philosophy mm-hmm. about politics um just not about my own life i i just sit on the stories about my own life and think about them and think about them and think about them and then when i finally figured them out then i share them I understand what you just mentioned because I see most of the writers and I believe again it's a personal bias maybe 
or just a personal experience or statistics that I have. But most of the writers don't feel comfortable sharing their own stories. Mm-hmm. It's you know like saying most of the writers are introverts, which is maybe true. Or the kind of experience that I have. What do you think? Most of the writers are introverts. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sort of. It's sort of inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> Although so that, now, yeah. Now that we have internet, in in these modern times, as we say, yeah, yeah, a lot of people write online articles, and it is an extroverted process if there's a comment section and if people are using the comment section. So I think a lot of extroverts are sharing their personal stories online in a way that <laughs> encourages comments. But I think in history, when when books were less interactive, yeah, when there was no Goodreads, for example, to have an entire social media platform devoted to books, yeah, yeah, writers tend to be introverts. Uh, so that I have a term for you. I don't know. I have heard about this term like a. Uh, a while ago, so the term you mentioned is uh, textroverts. So who are fairly comfortable on text. Have you heard about this term? Oh, a textrovert. Yeah, textrovert. Oh, no, I've never heard that. <laughs> so it's basically you might have uh, seen a lot of people who are really, really comfortable talking on text. text message on their phones text message or you know like uh, the, <laughs> the way you mentioned you know in comment section or possibly text message instead of you know getting on a call or meeting someone in person and it has a lot of things to do with uh, like when you're texting uh, it's the same if i'm texting you or if i'm texting you know let's say anaksha i'm mentioning her name because we'll talk about her a little mm-hmm. or you know like i'm texting my ex or i'm texting my parents or whatever all of you guys will appear same on my f- mobile phone you will use the same language maybe different you know words but possibly same color i will not be able to hear your tone apart from you know how i will imagine it in my head so it will right. be fairly easy for me to you know be consistent with you and i believe i don't know i'm i'm talking and thinking about it for the first time <laughs> so uh, what i believe is uh, maybe i haven't researched about it i might be wrong let me know if i'm wrong uh introverts what i understand introverts are really really comfortable either on stage or out of the room but they are not comfortable in the crowd hmm. and the reason so let, let me you know like put into the whole thread before you know ask yeah. your you know views on it and the reason i believe this is true is talking one on one or talking in groups might uh, you know take up a lot of energy because the way i'm talking to you will be different than you know the way i'm talking to my parents or the way i'm talking to my sister or the way i'm talking to my schoolmates but if i'm on stage i have to be just one person and talk to everyone at a time <laughs> or if i'm on text i might not have to change my energy every time or maybe not change my energy a lot 
every time i'm talking to different person because I they see. will not be talking to me in different tones they will not be talking to me in different voice levels because you may see a lot of people use a lot of you know high voice you know or some people like me i prefer talking in a relatively calm and low voice kind of thing which i believe you also belong to that category uh so uh th- this is my theory and i don't know i just created this theory like 2 minutes ago in my head <laughs> what are your thoughts about it <laughs> it's it's an interesting theory i i'm comparing it to people who send cards for the holidays okay god it, it is a tradition where i'm from anyway around christmas for most yeah. people where I'm from or for new years if they're being religiously inclusive they print a photo of their family with a little note saying this is how the year went for my family wishing you all the best and they mail it to everyone they know so they only write it once it's one paragraph <laughs> written to an audience of everyone and they send yeah. it out and they might get some responses back saying great to hear from you so glad you sent a nice photo of your family but i i think you're right that it saves some energy because if they had made a phone call to 50 different people <laughs> explaining their whole year that would be a very tiring <laughs> phone call to have 50 times <laughs> yeah yeah uh but some people would prefer to have the phone call it depends on the personality type Yes and uh, so personally i used to be or i used to identify as an extrovert like you know in the beginning and then my this therapy phase happened my depression and anxiety phase happened and i was you know kind of introvert but i could not be because you know like there was an identity crisis that i really liked having conversations with people and over the time i stabilized you know like my mental health and myself and the recent most i took the 16 type personality test and i got results as a 55% introvert so i am an ambivert like almost 50-50 but you know slightly on the introvert scale slightly more on the introvert part and i believe it's true i really enjoy so it's you know kind of a dilemma for ambiverts like me i really enjoy having conversations with you know like one on one probably that's why we are doing this interview i really enjoy you know like meeting new people but there's a limit then i need my own time <laughs> then i need my own time you know like there are like kind of days when i cannot see anyone let me be on my part and which i believe is you know the major part for introverts mm-hmm. it's so interesting how we can continue to learn these things about ourselves <laughs> we think we know who we are and then <laughs> we we examine it in a bit more detail and then we learn something like wow this is why sometimes i want to have these conversations and other times i don't like sometimes i want to be alone it, and then yeah we can we can learn this and it can change over time too right exactly exactly my point it can change over time or that's what i have experienced personally uh, how do you identify yourself like do you feel you're like kind of an extrovert or what i am pretty strongly an introvert oh <laughs> when, yeah 
And I like one-on-one conversations very much. In group conversations, I find it challenging to, uh, yes. you know, to, to manage the dynamic or to participate fully in the d- dynamic because I'm registering all different kinds of energy from different people and, you know, just trying to pay attention. This person is now participating. This person looks yeah. like they might want to change the topic. This person has different needs. And, you know, as the hour goes on, some people might get more and more excited and other people might get more and more tired. And some people are talking to each other. You can tell some people are already best friends and other people want to keep their distance. So that's that's a lot of information for me to process. I can tell I'm an introvert because I know I do much better when I'm talking to one person at a time. And I also love my alone time. I'm a reader. I read so many books as well as writing. It's, it's, it's part of the same process for me. I take information yeah. in and I, I admire a book and I want to write something like that, or I just, I learn something from it and I integrate it into my writing. Um, so just by the sheer amount of time I spend alone reading books, I, I know I'm an introvert. <laughs> I can understand that. Okay, so uh, uh, we come to this topic while we were talking about, you know, mental health and mm-hmm. related issues or therapy and stuff. So uh, interestingly, Facebook suggested me a video uh, of Ben Sharipo. I, I believe I'm taking his name correctly. Do you know him? Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. I'm sorry. I must have mispronounced it. Uh, okay. So you know him. So I watched like, uh, so he was in my newsfeed somehow. And he was talking about, you know, uh, so he has his views that uh, transgender people are mentally ill. Okay, mm-hmm. they have mental illness. And you know, like uh, anti-trans people or anti-LGBT community or stuff, like maybe not LGBT community, but anti-trans people specifically or anti-non-binary uh, genders specification. So I was like, uh, I'm fairly uneducated on this topic. So let me have, you know, like anti views on it as well. Like, let me see what, uh, what are the criticisms or, you know, what are the thoughts of people who are kind of, you know, not accepting it or who are kind of opposing the whole uh, movement or the whole existence of these people, right? So he, uh, like I mentioned, he made this, uh, uh, this one video and I'm talking about this with you because I wanted to know your opinion on it. I am again, you know, like totally unbiased or undecided of, you know, like what it is or whatever. But uh, Ben Shapiro, is that his name? Yes. Okay. So he mentioned that uh, trans people uh, have this, uh, again, mental illness and uh, they should not, it it should not be like that or, you know, like uh, kind of opposing the existence of trans thing. What are your, you know, like views about this part? About whether it's a mental illness or about how to deal with people who are (laughs) anti-transgender? Maybe let's talk both one by one. Okay. Right. So the thing about calling it a mental illness was originally justified. Mm -hmm at least where I'm from, by saying, well, transgender people are asking doctors for help. They're asking 
yeah. for hormones and surgery often. So how is the doctor going to give any kind of treatment? Because that's what doctors do. They treat illnesses. How is a doctor going to prescribe hormones as a medication if the person doesn't have an illness to treat, right? How is a doctor going to, um, a surgeon, yeah. how is a surgeon going to operate on a healthy body part, doesn't have cancer, isn't causing pain, if the person doesn't have any sort of illness to treat? My what is the motivation? So calling transgender identity a mental illness was justified by saying it helps the medical professionals, right? Okay. In like the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, oh. 80s, even 90s, it was uncommon for a psychotherapist or a medical doctor to work with a transgender person and to enable that person to change genders, right? To support them. Okay. The cool. medical professional was taking a risk right? Because they have their community of professionals and they have to not be seen as doing something that is too controversial yeah, or yeah. that might be damaging someone, right? That's, that's the argument. Like someone comes to you, a patient, a client comes to you and says, I'm transgender. Well, what if that person is psychotic, right? That's, that's going to be the yeah. argument the medical yeah. professional has. Then the medical professional's community, they're, they're um, their peers and their supervisors are going to say to them, well, how do you know that that person doesn't have a psychosis? And like, you don't yeah. want to operate on that person if they have some totally other problem, because then you're going to be liable for having hurt them. You, yeah. you made them transgender or you, you told them to come out to their family when in fact that wasn't the issue, right? Like, so the, the medical professionals were taught to be very careful they were, they were told, you will be liable if you hurt your client. And so you have yep. to be absolutely sure that this person actually is transgender when they say they're transgender. So what they did was they made these frameworks to say okay. there is a mental illness called being a transsexual. And it was mm -hmm. written up in the book and they had to make all the criteria because they did it according to the medical style. And they'll say, you meet a number of these criteria, then we will diagnose you as actually being transsexual. And that covers our liability for them treating you according to the thing we have diagnosed you with, right? But just because that's the system doesn't mean that being transgender actually is a mental illness. And they actually, in the past several years, have updated those medical guidance literatures to uh, say, you know, not really. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to interrupt you and thank you for you know like uh, talking about it. I'm also interested in knowing the people who set up this these systems. Were any of them trans at the moment? That is interesting, and to my knowledge, no, they were not. Because I see the so I talked with Anangsha like I guess two weeks ago. Uh, we had this kind of interview only, and I you know like we discussed feminism. And a lot of issues with feminism is the people who are, you know, setting up the rules or criteria for feminism are men or, you know, like who are like totally privileged and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So every time I hear someone saying that we are setting up something, 
the very first question in my mind comes up is uh, do they have a person you know who is actually related to that stuff so for example uh, in india our ministers are usually usually not well educated which kinds of you know like makes you question that the person who is setting educational guidelines for the country if they are not educated how is the system going to be fair or you know just interesting uh, and interesting. Uh, <laughs> i'm just kind of you know like i'm so glad that i am doing this interview with you because i got to learn so many <laughs> things already and you're learning things about our world yeah um, and it it's actually interesting you know to uh, understand and i did not know this about uh, that you know it was considered as an illness or is it still being considered as an illness not so much anymore no in the past okay. several years it's being described more as a condition which in my understanding means something more like a situation that you deal with okay not something that is a defect that has to be corrected okay so it's more like because it's a condition it's something that a medical professional or a psychotherapist can help you adapt to it can be discussed more as the circumstances of your life or your body or your mind body interaction yeah yeah not so much um what we call pathologized not so much as something that is mm. wrong with you that needs to be yeah. corrected so educate me a little bit on this like do you think is it fair whatever the situation is uh, now the way you mentioned it or is there still some you know like fallacy or false you know uh, interpretations that needs to be changed as far as transgender people getting medical care and psychotherapy okay i think that a lot of people can't afford it first of all yeah yeah a lot of people would benefit from psychotherapy and need surgery actually i would say need to feel confident about themselves to mm. like their body enough to be able to function in the world and also to keep themselves safe if they're living as a member of that gender they need to be able to walk down the street safely and yeah, yeah. hormones and surgery will help keep them safe in their gender then you know that's that's a reasonable request um and it's it's therefore an injustice that some people can't afford it you know that some people's privilege allows them to yeah to say design to to design the way they want to look to yeah. um you know to take care of their bodies and take care of their minds and and to live in safe neighborhoods for example that's yes kind of um, that's an underlying situation that affects our healthcare are we yeah. living somewhere where we are not at risk for getting hit um you know all all of that is is part of taking care of ourselves so um, yeah being able to afford it and having access to competent health professionals yeah is is another part of it that a, a lot of healthcare professionals still don't know anything about it so they're not 
able to provide the competent healthcare, even if the person can afford it. Uh, so I would want to share a little bit, you know, uh, and point out what you mentioned that some people need surgery to feel confident. So I worked mm-hmm. with, you know, in my previous company, I, we had a client, a uh, plastic surgeon client. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I come from a marketing background. So understanding their product is, you know, like a prerequisite to my job, like why they are doing what they're doing. And we have this, these misconceptions that, you know, like uh, breast in enhancement or breast reduction or, you know, lip surgery or doing something with your face and stuff like that. You know, those people are really superficial to label them, let's say. I don't know if, you know, you think it this way or, you know, uh, people from developed countries think this way. But in general, a lot of people do, you know, like stereotype this, you know, like having a plastic Mm -hmm. surgery and not a plastic surgery to live. Like, you know, you're not going to die, you know, if you, uh, let's say, don't change your face if you don't going to if you're not going to die if you don't reduce or you know like uh, manipulate not manipulate but if you don't what's the right word to use do something about your lips let's say you're not going mm-hmm. to die per se but i believe you know like uh, we have come to a world where survival is not the only point of concern right and confidence is you know like Underconfident people also survive, but we need a little more than survival. And when I researched a lot about, you know, like plastic surgeons and not the kind of plastic surgery that comes for burn victims, let's say, you know, where you need plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the plastic surgery in beauty stuff. Okay. Where it's a choice of a person to feel confident, to feel beautiful. And I saw some testimonials where, you know, like, uh, let's say a teenage girl, maybe 17, 18 or 19, she got a breast enhancement surgery and it helped her gain confident, you know, like multiple folds. So I totally, you know, like endorse your statement that sometimes you need surgery. And for other people, it might not look as a need but maybe for you, it is not just a desire, it is actually a need. Yeah. I think it is very personal and it can be hard to explain because it comes from the context of our lives, all of our associations with what is gender and what gender am I. Yeah. It's it's very deep-rooted. And I was, I was interested that you brought up the example of a burn victim, because yeah. <laughs> if I burn my skin, it's a medical problem. Um, our skin protects us, right, from the outside world, yeah. and we will be prone to infections yeah. if we don't have good skin. And it's also very painful when there's a problem with our skin. It's a very sensitive organ. Um, so we, we do need to fix that if, if the skin is severely damaged medically. But then there's also the situation where someone simply has a very bad scar from a burn, for example, or some kind of a a cut. And sometimes when people have those kinds of injuries and they're left with very bad scars, they 
they want to correct them for psychological reasons. They yes. have a, a psychological problem. They say, okay, well, you know, I was burned on my face. It's not damaged anymore. It no longer hurts. It's no longer infected, but I can see it. And, and this makes me um, socially isolated, for example. If, if, I have, yeah. if I'm so embarrassed about having a scar on my face that I don't leave the house, that is severely impacting my life. That means I don't have a job. It means I, I can't take care of my family. You know, so I need someone to fix what yeah. I see as a defect in my face. And then it will dramatically improve my life, right? If, I, if I'm at least given a chance to correct that scar to the best of my ability. And there might be someone else who has exactly the same sort of scar, who is not psychologically bothered by it. They say, whatever, I have a scar on my face. I go out, I have my job, I have relationships, not a big deal. It's so personal, it's so individual. Yes. Okay, uh, Tucker, just you have to give me one moment. My yeah. Mac is almost dying. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, coming back to the point, uh, thank you for, you know, sharing your views on this and I totally relate to it. Uh, and this is why we are seeing, you know, like boss, uh, body positivity movements at the same time when, you know, like I'm sitting here and justifying that it's okay to go for plastic surgery only if you, you know, like want to make your lips more beautiful. It's perfectly okay. Uh, second point that I wanted to, you know, like, uh, so usually I do not talk a lot in these interviews, but uh, I'm doing a lot in, you know, I'm talking a lot in this particular interview with you because uh, I want anybody who's watching to, you know, have a perspective of, you know, like two different part of, parts of world as well. So you come from US who has been, a, you know, that has been a developed country for some time now. And I come from India, which still does not accept LGBT for a, you know, long stretch. Okay. So I, I for that particular reason, uh, I would want to, you know, like uh, share the stories in the real time in this interview. And I hope that's okay with you. Yeah. So the second part you mentioned, you know, therapy being, uh, first of all, therapy being affordable. Okay. Secondly, uh, psychotherapist being informed about stuff. There is textbook psychology, which will talk about depression, anxiety, and you know, all those things, which are again, kind of normalized in that society's box. Okay, but then there are things which we started accepting lately, like LGBT mm -hmm. or uh, non-binary genders or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and I'm talking about this because I wanted to mention a specific part. So I have a friend who went through anorexia. Do you have a little introduction about that? So anorexia is a food disorder eating disorder and the person uh, is so conscious about their body structure or you know their body fat or whatever that uh, you know they refuse to eat or they fast for a long time or they are really picky and concerned about what they eat i also come from a food you know disorder and i did not know it up until like a week ago that i actually had an issue like actually had a disorder 
so when i was going through you know uh, depression and anxiety attacks uh, i developed this unhealthy habit of eating food and you know like eating my emotions so i just locked myself up in a room and although it was kind of a productive period as well i learned a lot of you know digital marketing online but i used to you know like eat all the time and whenever i get into any uncomfortable situation i'll rather eat something okay and like so last week it was national eating disorder awareness week did you know <laughs> i was not aware of the awareness week but that's that's okay because the point of the awareness week is that we stay aware yeah. and we're aware all the year long and guess what i was also not aware <laughs> so this one friend who had this anorexia and she's you know like a dear friend of mine for a year or so uh so i looked up about eating disorders and i found that okay there is a binge eating disorder and then there is a test that you know psychotherapist out of these five points if you check any three you are you know like you belong to or you have binge eating disorder and out of 5 you know like 5 years ago i would have taken at least 4 mm-hmm. so it was you know like kind of uh, my experience so uh, why i was talking about this is so this person you know who actually had still probably you know like uh, working through her anorexia she mentioned a lot of therapists you know are not even aware of uh, these issues or a lot of dietitians are not aware of these issues that you know like you cannot just say tell someone that stop eating why are you eating so much or you know start eating it, it's simple you want to gain weight start eating something start you know like start eating more stuff like that and that kinds of you know like brings me back to your point that uh, we need consistent and constant upgradation in the textbook psychology as well hmm What do you think? Yeah, that that psychologists should be updating their materials all the time, and their guidance, based on what actually helps people, and feedback from what people say. Uh, yes. So, uh, I I want to. <clears throat> shout out a little bit about uh the therapy or you know where i have been taking therapy so my therapist she was a really kind person she did not take any money from me when she you know like gave me therapy and she was like i never tried you know online therapy or text therapy so let's try it and i just want to learn so she was that kind of person and one of her friends they started a startup uh, it's you know like an online marketplace of therapists and they mm-hmm. are providing therapy for a really really affordable piece at least for the timing in india and it's probably like i don't know 10 12 dollars a session currently which i believe is you know like quite affordable for indians as well like not all the indians but you know like for a long for a large group of indians and i understand it's quite affordable for at least you know people from developed countries how do you feel if you get 
therapy for ten dollars a session. <laughs> I have not been given the opportunity to have therapy for a ten dollars a session, but um, yeah. No, I, I I know there's a lot of different models out there. Yeah, so what they are doing is they are offering online, you know, like Zoom sessions or calling sessions only. But so, like you mentioned, currently in US, the issue is affordability of therapy, right? Okay. The issue in India is normalization of therapy, mm. which I believe, you know, like US still has normalized a lot of, you know, like taking therapy and everything. But in India, although in the last three four years, like not too long. But in the last three four years, it has came up a lot. We have lost, you know, there was a really uh, good actor in, in in Bollywood, Sushant Singh Rajput, and he came from a really, you know, like a middle class family, and he became like popular, and he died by suicide last year. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people became even more aware of, you know, like depression and. all this kind of stuff so i'm mentioning all of this because this is you know like where we are as a country that you know we are still in the process we are normalizing you know taking therapy which i believed happened in us maybe one or two decades ago if i'm not wrong probably yeah uh, i don't remember in my lifetime that it was very shameful for people to go to therapy or or seen as unusual i i think um at least where i came from the geographic area i was from it was seen as pretty normal that if you yeah. had a concern about something you could talk to a social worker for example if you have a a problem with your family that needs to be sorted out some difficult family relation you can talk to a social worker or you can go privately to a psychotherapist that that never seemed unusual to me in the US and the place where i come from not just a city or a state you know like a whole country it's often you know like uh, made fun of when a person goes to a therapist so they call you know like uh, in fact the doctor is being you know like totally uh, left out by the society maybe i don't know what's the right word to use here so they call that uh, you are mad that's why you are going to mad doctor so they call mm-hmm. psychotherapist as a mad doctor there's a local word to use here obviously but even they you know like shame the doctor treating mad people that he is a mad oh, doctor interesting and but i believe the time is constantly upgrading with internet and so india has gone through a total transformation in the last 4 years because of you know the affordability of internet and that's how i believe you know like we are bringing in change thank you so much you know for offering me to talk about this because i i i don't know i never had a chance to talk about uh, the situation of therapy in india coming back to point <laughs> uh so you mentioned about your writing you also mentioned about your uh, life coaching a little bit i want to know uh, you know what are your views on love
That's that's a good question. Um, I never asked anyone this before, but I was just curious to know it. <laughs> you mean romance? I don't want to uh, elaborate the question. I just want to ask, you know, what are your views about love? Well, I think we need more of it in our world today. <laughs> um, our, our world has increasingly, I think, become defined by numbers, by the, the scramble for money in a capitalist society and the stats on our product sales or web page views. Um, and human connection is really as important as ever, because that's why we're here, you know? Um, it's important to stay true to our cores and stay true to each other. And uh, if we talk about romantic love, because you know, that was the thought that pop up in your head <laughs> when I asked you the question, uh, what are your views about romantic love? Or how do you define a relationship or anything that comes to your mind around these topics? Huh. I think it's important to allow ourselves opportunities, you know, to meet people who we might not otherwise have met if we were too rigid in our assumptions. So to be um, to be open-minded, both when we meet a person who happens to be in front of us and, and to interacting with that person, but also even before we meet the person, just to be open-minded in our attitudes toward who we might meet today and who we are going to allow ourselves to meet today. How do you become open-minded? Um, it might help to think about the constraints that we learned from our parents or from our culture, just to reflect upon the assumptions. Like we were told that we are going to meet a person a certain way at a certain time in our lives, a certain place, say for people who are raised with the expectation that they will attend a university they might grow up thinking, well, I attend the university and I'm serious about my studies, but what is very likely is that in the middle of my studies, I'm going to meet the person I'm going to marry. And we will both be from the same university, so we'll have something in common and we will get married and you know, go on from there. And sometimes that's how it works for people. It's nice to be open-minded if you are studying at a university. Of course, be open-minded, yeah. you might meet someone there. But it's also possible you might meet someone who is not at all from your university, who has no interest in attending university, but they might be a great person for you to get to meet. And they might be from another country and who knows where you're going to meet them and when you're going to meet them. And it is possible you might not meet the person you're going to marry until you are 45 years old, you know? Like, yes. who knows? So yeah. we're just gonna be open-minded about what is going to happen in our lives. Uh, 
it's it's beautiful you know how uh, you answered this question if you you know like ask me to answer this question you know how to be open minded i would uh, want to add a little extension to whatever you just mentioned uh any time you are making a judgment by judgment the you know like let's say you are just starting out this journey on you know of self awareness and you let's say you are at level 0 you want to start out a judgment can be classified as distincting something or someone as good or bad as simple as that right for starters let's say so any time you make a judgment about yourself about others about any activity you know ask yourself a question why do i think like that so that's what i you know like personally what i did uh, so i wrote about you know like i had a couple of uh, hookups like i wrote about it a week ago i was rereading it yesterday and the way i wrote it i saw you know like i'm shaming myself on it that my tone of writing shows that you know i'm ashamed that i went through, or i had a couple of hookups and i i just you know like asked myself this question that why do i think that why do i think that hookups are bad so you know like again labeling something good or bad and then you know like just checking in with yourself that why do i think that so for example uh a negativity not negativity a shortcoming of body positivity uh movement according to me can be that people can get too comfortable in being who they are that means if you have a lot of fat in your body it is medically bad <laughs> so you know like that kind of judgment could actually help you as well that okay if i'm overweight a little bit it might not you know like be a lot of issue but if i'm too much overweight it can be bad for my health and in that way you know like labeling your fat as bad might be a good thing or might be a bad thing but it might be a good thing as well mm. yes and and learning to do so on a personal level too is helpful yes. if if we just take that judgment from a book it's a generalization and it might yeah. not apply to our lives so I mean I can speak about my own weight because I have um a little problem with my hip that I was born with. I have a a bad joint in my hip. Okay. The the x-ray looks all funny just cuz I was born with the ball not really in the socket. So Okay. For me personally, I have to stay relatively slim so that I can walk comfortably. Yeah. I gain even a tiny bit of weight, I feel it in my hip. and I, it's hard for me to walk. So oh. that's, you know, my personal preference and my personal choice. Yeah. But it's um you know, it's not my business to tell anyone else what they should weigh and people who have good hips, well, they 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 can be larger and they walk fine. So they would be the experts on their bodies. I I would let them have that expertise and uh and I know something interesting about my own hip. So I just let myself be the expert of that. and decide what i want to weigh <laughs> i i totally agree to that and the point of you know having that discussion was you know really questioning that where are you getting this information from 
so if the information is that it's okay to be yourself it's okay to you know like totally accept for who you are but if your doctor is constantly saying you you know lose your weight or you are going to die in the next 2 years hmm. probably you would want to question you know your take on the body positivity part it's not supposed to you know like make you again there needs to be a balance between acceptance and improvement that's what i usually tell people yeah and um yeah that that can be an important source of information right to um to listen to what medical professionals tell us when when it's hard to hear for some reason i uh, you know the, just an example about the whole part that uh, so the uh, going back to where this whole conversation started that uh, to be more open minded open minded we need to constantly question our beliefs so if mm-hmm. my belief is gay people are really bad or you know like i don't like gay people and then just asking where is it coming from is it coming from your conservative society or you know like your people or your parents or you know again stuff like that exactly what you mentioned constantly checking in that why do i feel this way about this certain thing and thank you so much for you know <laughs> answering about the whole love part uh what would be your advice for people who are still closeted is that the right word to use yeah that that's one possible word people still use the word closeted for certain circumstances what yeah. are the other words to use sometimes i think um the word closeted tends to suggest that a person is aware that they are gay or transgender oh. but they're afraid to share it with anyone or they feel a social need to keep it private yeah for yeah well they um, they're not yes. necessarily afraid to share it with their boss but they know that if they do say it to their boss they're going to get fired it's not that they're afraid to get fired they just prefer not to be fired so they're going to stay closeted yes i i see the whole notion of this word what are the other words that could be used you know like in this case so for example there could be so let me give you the definitions or the scenarios and you suggest me the word to use so for someone who are unaware of who they are or you know like who they prefer to be maybe let's say uh, what could be the word to use here who are you know really uncomfortable in their current situation that that they're feeling some discomfort yeah and they they'd like to become uh, say living more authentically yeah that's, yeah that's that's one word that people use when they're looking to where they want to be how do i live more authentically yeah how do i live more openly yes. in a more fulfilling way uh sometimes people say that they are questioning their identity when they're hmm. in 
a prolonged process of self-examination. Okay. So I just got a word in my head. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how about explorers? Do that sound like a right word? Exploring their identity. People say that. Yeah. Or, you know, like uh, explorers in journal because exploring identity, sexuality or mm -hmm. anything. Well, I've never heard anyone call themselves an explorer. But yeah, why not? I like it. <laughs> so uh, what is your advice for, let's say, closeted people or who are not closeted by choice? If that's the, if that gives you a better reflection of the whole scenario. Yeah. And, and not by choice. Do you mean that something bad would happen to them if they. Yeah. Like, out? like you mentioned, you know, that uh, they will get fired, let's say. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps they already have a family and they'd be at risk of losing their family if they decided to come out and change their lives. I'm, I'm sorry. Like your wait a second i'm i'm <laughs> really sorry there was some issue with the sound i'm really sorry ah, you need to no uh, repeat your last sentence yeah for some people they already have families so at the yeah. time when they begin to question their identity they risk losing their family if they come out as being gay or bisexual or transgender. Yes, uh, yes. They're not sure if they would even want to stay in their marriage or if their spouse would want to stay in the marriage. It, it becomes an uncertain situation. Okay. Yeah, there's that too. So that can be part of feeling like they don't have a choice. Yeah. How would someone know if they have a choice to, you know, like maybe come out of closet for the lack of a better word. Yeah. For some people, it becomes a matter of realizing that there's a risk that if they come out, they may have to renegotiate every relationship in their lives. Yeah. Especially if they're asserting a new gender. If they're going to change their gender role and ask that they be called by a new name and pronouns and that they're going to dress differently, everything gets renegotiated. And probably they're going to lose at least one relationship, at least one friendship, at least one job opportunity. Someone in their extended family is going to pull back from them a little bit someone's going to give them a hard time. Someone's going to question them. Well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know you're transgender? What if, what if you regret? Yeah. What if yeah, you what regret if after wrong? it? Or, or someone will blame them saying, this is so inconvenient for me. Think about how much trouble you're putting me through because you're making me remember your new name. And it's, it's a hassle for me, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so they, yeah, all of these kinds of relationships will change. Um, it's, it's making me feel, you know, although I have like almost nothing to do with it, <laughs> it's making me feel so uncomfortable at the moment. And, you know, like mm -hmm. I could 
I don't think I can even imagine the pain a person might be going through. And uh, so I have this question: Do you feel uh, having a session with a coach or a therapist may help them evaluate their risk? Evaluate the risk in their social life of coming out. Yeah, yeah. Social life, personal life, professional life. You mentioned, you know, like uh, to uh, so to know that if they have a choice to come out or not, uh, how you know a person know if they have a choice or not. So you mentioned that you know the very first thing that they need to do is evaluate the risks. So I'm just asking, you know, like evaluating the risks. Uh, do can a therapist or a coach help? Uh, can they help a person in that? Yeah, I think a well-informed therapist can help share some facts. Yeah. For example, a therapist might work with an HIV-positive community. Mm. So the therapist knows some facts about HIV risk, for example, and can communicate those facts. Yeah. That can be helpful. But um, you know, apart from that kind of knowledge transfer, I think generally therapists and coaches can simply be present for a person who yeah. is deciding to make a really big change and ask that person, for example, what would it take for you to be ready to make a change? How do you know when you're ready? What if you're not ready? What if you're never ready? Can you still change even if you're not ready, whatever being yeah. ready means to you? What, what yeah. happens if you say, um, you know, next Tuesday, I'm going to make the change, ready or not, here I come. What's that like? And also what happens to your life and to your sense of self if you never change? If you just decide to stay the way you are and continue this way for the rest of your life, is that okay? Would you feel okay about yourself? Yes, that, that's actually interesting to go through all these questions before making a change. What do you wish that, you know, a change that you could bring in the world? Mm. Even a really small one or a really big one doesn't matter. But what do you think, you know, like if you could make this one change, the world will be a more loving and accepting place. I think a lot about public transportation, as, mm -hmm. as unrelated as that may sound, but I think a lot about the energy use that goes into the way people get around cities and towns, okay. um, you know, in terms of the effect on the climate and the use of fossil fuels, but also in terms of the way it sometimes feels like we're battling each other to get around the city. It gets, yeah. It's a competition. If, if you're sitting in traffic and everyone's in their own car, it's like you're competing with every other car on the road. And there, I think there are more collective ways that we could get around, which is partly a metaphor. It's partly a metaphor to say yeah. we could collectively help each other get where we need to go. But it's also kind of a physical situation too. It's, it's a very physical reality that we are in our bodies and we are in the city together 
and we all need to help each other get where we need to go physically and otherwise. So I think a lot about that. And that's, that's a change that I would make if I could make one big change easily, say something like streamlined movement yeah. and collaboration in knowing where we want to go and helping each other get there. It's really interesting viewpoint. I never thought about it that way. Although I do think sometimes about what if there were no borders, mm. but that's pretty much what I have thought so far around transportation mm. <laughs> or travel. But it's fairly mm. common, you know, uh, thought that what if there were no borders? Mm-hmm. What if we, you know, like not discriminate people on, you know, like being born on this side of the road versus being born on that side of a road? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the source of so much suffering, right? And, and, and labels that don't always apply too. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, in this particular conversation, I have a lot of stories and my personal anecdotes to share. So I was watching, uh, so I live in Punjab, okay, in India. And uh, we have a border, uh, you know, with Pakistan. Okay, so Pakistan is probably five hours drive from my place. And just being curious, because I watch a lot of food videos, I <laughs> love eating food. <laughs> so Facebook knew that I needed to, you know, watch this video. So I, you know, watched a video of uh, vegetarian food in Pakistan. I, I am a vegan, by the way. So, uh, but then again, what? So Pakistan is a heavily Muslim community, and you know, like eating non-vegetarian foods is really, really common in that place. So expecting vegetarian food from, you know, like a country like that, was, you know, like again questioning, like why. Why can't be there, you know, like a vegetarian kind of food. And then I started exploring more, you know, YouTube videos, vegetarian food in Karachi, Islamabad, Lahore, or, you know, their Pakistan cities. And I see that they have so many, like, so many common dishes, so many common things on how they eat. And, you know, like probably uh, what they wear and how they talk and everything. And, they are just like five hours drive from my place. And I'm not relating to them as much as I'm relating to, let's say, 20 hours drive that's in my country, which mm-hmm. is totally un, you know, unrelated to the language they speak, the food they eat, and the culture they have. Huh. So just kinds of, you know, like makes me wonder that what if there were no borders? Uh, you have a book around trains. Okay, okay. You, you wanted to say something around this? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I did write a book about trains. Um, I'm thinking now, you know, I don't think it has to do with borders specifically. I don't think I discussed international borders really in the book. Although I did okay. discuss time zones. Okay. Because uh, when the the railroads were built, people could move places more quickly. Yeah. They could move places so quickly, they didn't even know what time it was going to be when they arrived. <laughs> you know, they're moving faster than the sun, basically. Um, or or the, the, the sun is, um, 
not that they're they're moving faster than the path of the sun, but the sun yeah. is just in a different location. I'm getting yes. Um, Have you done uh, research on Indian time zone and the train around it? Not so much about what happened in India, but but you have just one time zone for the whole country, right? Yeah, and the issue is, <laughs> so where Anangsha lives, so she is, you know, like on the almost like easternmost part of the country. So you know, the sun rises at probably let's say four o'clock there, and the westernmost part is Gujarat, and the sun rises, you know, with a two-hour difference there. So there's a gap of two hours. So if sun is rising in, you know, like uh, in an anxious place at 4 a.m., the sun will rise at 6 a.m. in Gujarat. So there's this, uh, there has been a lot of discussion around, you know, having two time zones in India as well, which mm. I see US is pulling out quite amazingly. So I'm sorry to, you know, like go on a sideline on this topic. Oh, it's, it's, it's just interesting to me yeah, because um, like, it's not that you could get in a train and keep pace with the, the, the position of the sun where the, seem, where the sun seems to be, but it's that if you're on the phone with someone and you call them up and you say, is the sun up where you are? And they say, no, it's still dark here. Leave me alone. I haven't woken up yet. Like, is, is, is that the challenge that, that some people want to start their business day and then other people still want to be asleep because the sun's not up yet? Could be. So I haven't done a lot of research around it, but you know, like uh, I just, I don't know. I, like I mentioned for the past couple of weeks, I've been watching randomly a lot of videos, you know, uh, being curious about the world. So uh, what I have seen is the, uh, we could have we could have or we still can save a lot of energy, human energy, as well as, you know, the electricity and other power energies by having two different time zones, mm -hmm. which will probably be because of, you know, again, the business hours and everything. So people, so if the business hours are from nine to five, but the sun, you know, rises up at four and they are sleeping till six or seven, they're losing out the first two, three hours of, you know, the sun energy, mm -hmm. which could be vital for agriculture and many other different things as well. And they're working at, you know, till seven or they are sleeping at 10 and mm -hmm. they're consuming more electricity, which mm -hmm. could have been avoided if, you know, they just wake up a little early with sun. Right. So there's, there's turning on a light to create the artificial light when the sun after the sun sets. And then there's say air conditioning, right? A lot of other things as well. Agriculture also. Agriculture. Um, I don't know how, but. You water the plants because if you water the plants in the middle of the day, when the sun is at the highest point, yeah, it evaporates, and you're wasting all the water because it's too hot. You you, you got to water the plants maybe in the dark. Kind of, uh, like I mentioned, I don't know, I don't know enough details about it. 
but i know you know the overview of it that uh, india can save a lot of energy in the long run maybe in the short run we have to educate a lot of people but uh, yeah a lot of energy can be saved with having two time zones two different time zones i bet there's a lot of interesting science in that question <laughs> possibly so <laughs> i want to come back to your book because i want to know about it because i have read the blurb i guess and seen a lot of your post around it in the last month uh, tell me a little bit about your book oh yeah the the book i wrote about the trains i came to that topic because there was a man who interested me he was born in 1901 and he died by suicide in 1940 and he had attempted to write a world history of unix and he never What's published that? it um a history of unix of of men who were castrated that was that was his Ooh. yeah that was his academic interest and he What's the spelling of it i'm sorry i'm unaware about it e u n u c h oh okay okay I got. It. I have watched Game of Thrones. I know a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that was his academic interest in the early twentieth okay. century. But he's a he's a mystery because he never published his book. He left it behind as a handwritten manuscript, and then he died by suicide. So I okay. became very curious about why he wrote this manuscript. what he was trying to do who he was it became a yeah. question of who he was and that too becomes a question of who i am that i even found him interesting yeah so it became a a non-fiction examination of who i am that i am interested in this mysterious man and okay. why did he try to write this book and why did he fail was it something in the book something in his approach to his question that just did not lend itself to ever finishing a book um yeah so it's about gender and about how we examine gender and the reason the trains came into it was that his father was a railroad president his father oh. helped build the trains in the US starting in the 1880s and then okay. into the early 20th century so he was he was one of those important businessmen who started to connect the country Um, but it was the son i was really interested in how come the son never worked for the for the railroads how come the son didn't finish his book mm. so yeah it's a, it's a complex examination about identity and why we're passionate about the things we're passionate about some people are passionate about trains some people are passionate about gender history yeah yeah so i re- i remember this I only know one person that's also fictional who is really passionate about trains. <laughs> that's Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. <laughs> But anyway, uh <laughs> So, uh, what's your what's the title of your book? 10 past noon. 10 past. I show you. This one. So, I'm going to put the link in the description so if anybody wants to uh check out the book and if anyone would want to reach out to you tucker where should they you know approach you they can find me on my website 
Okay. TuckerLieberman.com. There's a contact form on my website. I also okay. have Gmail. You can just email me directly at tucker.lieberman at gmail.com. And I'm on okay. Twitter. I do tend to check my Twitter DMs rather frequently. So that's that's an option as well. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm there to be found. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for, you know, like being open and available for conversations and i'm going to put up all the links in the description so if anybody wants to just check out his uh, you know books his website his writings he's an amazing writer i would definitely want to i want you to check out his medium writings and yeah you can you know just look out the links in the description i'd want to uh, thank you tucker so much for showing up having this conversation having this in-depth long conversation with me i did not realize it's already you know like past two hours uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a movie <laughs> i'm doing interviews <laughs> like a movie <laughs> and i really enjoyed our conversations i learned a lot and i really I hope so. thank you for saying that and i really believe whoever is going to watch will also learn a lot then again if you have any questions uh, whoever is watching this i want you to ask those questions if you don't feel comfortable asking them in uh, public it's totally fine you know reach out to me maybe if i'm the right person to answer i'll answer it or i have a really good network of people who might be you know like i'll connect you with someone or if you have a personal question or even a journal question for tucker ask him right away uh thank you so much tucker I really, really, really enjoyed our conversation. It was great. I'm so glad we did this. Me too. And let's see. You're welcome. Let's see when we can do it again. All right. <laughs> That's it for now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.